Don't forget that you can now listen to the Politocrat podcast on Audible at audible.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe now. And thank you for your support. Welcome to the Politocrat. I am Omar Moore. It is Wednesday, December the 9th, 2020. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter Leonora Lapita Anton of the Tampa Bay Times. We will be talking about her latest story written with two of her colleagues about a nursing home in Seminole, Florida. The title of the story is Death at Freedom Square. You'll want to stay tuned for this conversation. And it's coming up next. On this podcast, um, I have said many times that it's important to really get to the people behind the numbers that we see when it comes to coronavirus and, and get to the human stories. It's so important that we do. And I, I think it's very important that we do do that, especially now, but all the time. We see numbers, we get numb. But it's important to speak to people who have reported on the human beings behind these numbers. And one of the people who has done that is Leonora Lapita Anton. She is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist for the Tampa Bay Times. And she has written a story along with two other writers called Death at Freedom Square about a nursing home in Seminole, Florida and some of the things that have gone on there. We're going to talk for a few minutes about that with Leonora Lapita Anton. Thank you for being here, Leonora. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I, I have to say, um, this story just ripped my heart out. <laughs> it, this, is, this is something that is going on in Florida, but it is going on everywhere else, it seems. There's a lot of this going on. It's a disturbing read. I do recommend that everybody read your December 3rd story. And we're going to talk about it for a few minutes. Can you first tell me a bit about Freedom Square um, in Seminole Pavilion? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, please, first? So <clears throat> Freedom Square is a retirement complex with about 700 residents. It serves independent living, hospice, nursing home, assisted living. It's <clears throat> located in north about, I'd say, I don't know, 20 miles north of St. Petersburg, something like that. Um, and it's near Tampa, Florida. Uh, people pay an entry fee to go in there and then they pay a monthly fee to live there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's been around for a couple decades. It has like um, a town square in the center of it, a gazebo, a clock tower. It's sort of real homey in the middle <laughs> with ponds and stuff. Um, but then uh, it was in Pinellas County here 
um, one of the first facilities to get hit really hard by the coronavirus and ultimately over the course from you know april to july 40 people died who lived there at least so from the coronavirus so we decided to write about it um like what happened there you know we realized it was happening all over the state we realized that you know the, the nursing home numbers were exploding all over the state we could see that <clears throat> i personally had my father in an in a assisted living memory care unit and um you know i was worried about it and that was kind of one of the things i was like what's going on in these places you know i need to do this research for everybody but also for me <laughs> because right. i need to understand what my father you know what what these facilities are about and what's happening and is it going to get in there and so um ultimately we decided to go to the one that was hit first and hardest uh in the county um and and that's why we chose freedom square to write our story around mm, mm. i i appreciate the what you've just said uh, it's good to lay out that groundwork um so that people have a contextual entry and understanding um, about where we are about to go, what we're about to go into here. Um, I did want to look at uh, four people, because you write about a number of people um, who who die from this virus and not just die from it. It's the what the people at the uh, Freedom Square, the institution does, that just really takes your, I don't know, it just does something to you. Um, so there's four people, actually, and I want to get you to speak a little bit about them. Um, you start with, I believe her name is Margaret Jackson Blackman or Marjorie Blackman. She is somebody. Marjorie. Marjorie. Mm -hmm. Marjorie Blackman. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much for correcting, for um, clarifying for me. And she was someone who was retiring or was about to retire. Can you talk about her story? Sure. So Marjorie was 67 years old. She was uh, she was an immigrant from Guyana. She'd come here in uh, 1980 and uh, in her 50s, she'd gone back to school to get um, a license to become a licensed practical nurse. She uh, worked at Freedom Square for 15 years solid. And she she really her her daughter told me that she could have retired, actually but she just loved her work so much that she wanted to go and she she just really enjoyed it. So she um, <clears throat> was there in April and started to get sick. And she uh, came in one day with a, f a fever and, and was sent home. And ultimately she ended up uh, in a hospital on a ventilator and she died a couple a couple weeks later. Um, but she took care of a lot of the people in the facility, uh, and was you know known by a lot of the families. Um, and and you know um, a lot of people didn't even know she died. But um, you know there was a lot of heartache over that because she was just such a good person, and she you know just was so committed to her job mm. at the facility. Right, right. Uh, and that's the thing that really jumped out at me 
that the, the, the first story um, about her that, as you point out, she could have retired if she was about to, she wanted, you know, but she loved that job so much. Her commitment to the job and to serving others and to helping others um, superseded her any kind of self-interest or anything else that she might have had. Um, and, right. you know, that's the thing that really was poignant to me about her story. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about this is someone like that, she'd worked pretty much for a, a lot of her life in, in, in that facility, right? Or in as a caregiver in general, correct? In that facility, she became a nurse 15 years ago, went right to that facility and worked there solid for 15 years. Wow. Wow. And she was wearing a cloth mask for six weeks after, you know, the first cases arrived in Florida. Um, so I, I guess it would have been, no, four, no, five weeks, five weeks after the virus arrived in Florida, they still had cloth masks. And they also had, um, they were accepting rehab patients without testing them. And they were kind of, they were placing them in a, uh, an area that was supposed to be sort of quarantine, but it's where all the staff walked in and out to punch a time card every day. So, and, and, you know, um, they, they, their gowns, they said they, you know, they, they reused gowns over and over again, masks, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, it was just, of course, at the time, a lot of people, you know, it was a new thing, the coronavirus. So you have to give, um, a little bit of, you know, I don't know what <laughs> to, that this was all new to everybody. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This was new to everybody, but some places really clamped down. For example, my father's facility, um, did not have a case until July. So they were able to, you know, thwart it entering. They took serious precautions, um, and this facility, for example, an inspector arrived in late April and there was a table with somebody taking people's temperatures at the door. And the woman handed him a, 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 a thermometer with exposed probes and the inspector was like, we need another thermometer. So she pulled out one of those um, handheld ones right. and, and it, it recorded a, a temperature of 90.5.4 degrees and then the worker admitted acknowledged that um you know that it was broken and so and then there was uh, inside there were people with who were not washing their shields correct correctly you know by this time everybody was wearing shields they were ordered to wear you know the proper equipment and they were still people with cloth masks in despite the fact that you know n95s have been ordered um and so um you know, uh, um, I'm sorry, I just got distracted. Oh, that's <laughs> somebody. Okay, um, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but anyway, so so this is this day that these inspectors arrive is the exact day that Marjorie dies, and others have already died. So um, you know, there's still even though there's there's death there and people are dying there, they're still not quite taking care of things there. They're not making efforts there, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, the right efforts anyway. There's not enough leadership, I guess, to say, hey, this should be, you know, we should have, you know, correct, 
working thermometers at the front door right. at the very least, right? I mean, um, the assistant director of nursing reused gloves with hand sanitizer and, you know, the CDC says no reusing gloves. Um, so just different things like that. Wow. My goodness me. Well, and, and, and in a few moments, we're going to really get to some of the things that just will horrify people who read your story. I mean, I think it's important, though, that, again, I want to say this for the people listening. It is very important to be in touch with these stories and read them and really process them. We live in this very uh, fast food world of uh, social media, um, which can be very toxic, um, and uh, quite frankly, a 24-hour cable news cycle um, can fall victim to this too sometimes or in more than one occasion because they traffic in sound bites and numbers on a screen that flash and, you know, Dow Jones on the right-hand side and then above that, you've got the number of people who die. And, you know, that's... Anyway, I don't want to go off track too much, but the point I'm trying to make is that reading a story like this that Leonora has written along with her two colleagues is really important and that's why we're going through this for the next few minutes so that you get a glimpse of what you're going to see when you read this story and and to that end Leonora um, because there was one thing I want to get to where I think you cite if I remember correctly when I read it there were 95 deaths early on or at present and 40% of them came from one of these facilities am I getting that right or can you correct me on that so in the state of Florida, 40% of all deaths have occurred in nursing homes. Wow. Um, right. So, so yeah. you know, the majority of our death, I mean, not the majority, but a large portion of our deaths are attributed to nursing homes. Um, and here in Pinellas County, um, there's been about, I'm not, I think about between a 900 and a thousand deaths. That's the county that where Seminole Pavilion is located and two out of three are associated with nursing homes. We are a particularly hard hit um, area in terms of nursing homes. Um, and it, it just sweeps through. And in fact, it's swept through yet again recently in the fall. It, you know, um, at one of these home, one of the homes on in Freedom Square, 22 staffers tested positive a few weeks ago. Mm. So, you know, I mean, it just feels really difficult to keep it out of these places even when people try but when you don't try oh my god you know it's <laughs> it it's it's really bad you know when not when you don't try but when you don't try do the right things some experts that i talked to you know said that in some respects nursing homes kind of have to become like hospitals at this stage you know um they have to take the that kind of care in order to protect these res residents. And that's not an easy transition for these homes. You know, they're, they're, they have, their staffing is not up to what hospitals are, you know, all those types of things. So um, it's, it's a tough thing, no matter what way you look at it. And, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a really tough decision for family members to make a, about these facilities. What do we, what do you do with your family member, you know? Um, it's just, you know, you're trying to protect them. You think that they're going to be protected in there and you worry all the time. And then some are protected and some aren't, you know. So um, anyways. Yeah. No. And I one other thing I wanted to just add that that I found very poignant and touching about all of these stories. And we're going to get into just a couple more. So 
um, because I do think it's important to cover them, is the photographs, the artifacts, particularly, again, uh, Marjorie Blackman. There's a, there's a photo of her and her RN stamp or her RN badge and a couple of other artifacts that, that summarize what you and your writers and your colleagues have, uh, have expressed about her in, in the story you wrote. And I found that particularly touching, um, as did I find that with other people that you put their photos there um, and had this explanation. And one of those people um, is the next person, Tom, Thomas Minicillo. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. But mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about what happened to him? So he ha- Thomas Minicillo was a 74-year-old postal worker. He had a lot of health problems, pneumonia, ended up in the hospital, and then ended up in Freedom Square um, sometime in late March. Um, so his wife and he were very, very close, and uh, they talked every day. And then one day, the workers said, oh, he's too tired, he can't come to the phone now. Um, and so uh, then the next day, same thing. And and Mrs. Minicillo and her son kept calling and they couldn't get a hold of him. They actually went to the window, he'd been moved. Um, and, they, and they've learned that he was placed with another, with a roommate. And at some point um, on April 5th, he was sent to the hospital in an altered mental state. And uh, he tested positive April 9th, and he died April 10th. Um, He'd been married to his wife for 59 years. And the last thing, one of the last things she remembered him saying was, I just want to come home and have dinner with you. Um, He, uh, his, so he dies on April 10th. Marjorie Blackman, who we just talked to, went to work April 9th, April 10th, and April 11th is when she arrives and you know, has like a slight fever. Um, No, it takes a week for the facility to tell anybody the following Friday, April 17th is the first time anybody knows anybody's died. And most families learn that people have tested, tested positive for the first time at that point in time. Hmm. So the workers find out the Monday after they find out that 10 people have died of have tested positive but they don't find out that anybody's died and they're suddenly switched from cloth masks the friday before the day he dies to um surge uh, to you know n95s shields gowns gloves everything changes overnight on at that point in time um so anyways mm. um that that was that's Mr. Minicillo's story. He was the first one, and um, you know it's it's not really he was in rehab. It seems like it started in rehab, but it could have come from an employee or it could have come from one of the rehab patients coming from the hospital. They were coming from multiple hospitals. They weren't testing them for COVID. So you know, I I mean, you can see that the path in was available. You know. Yes, and uh, oh my goodness, this it, it just feels to me when I was reading through this story, and the next I think I'm going to make this next per well, there's one other person, but I think this story is one that people should hear um, before they read your story. This this Freedom Square 
was so callous. I mean, that's probably the nicest way I can put it. Um, in my judgment of them, um, as an investigative reporter, I guess you uh, probably avoid making too many judgments. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to render any. <laughs> um, but one of the things I do want to um, mention, Leonora, to back up what I just said about making that judgment from my own personal view is the story of Donald Jack, because that story, you, you, you can tell that better than I. So could you please tell listeners about Donald Jack? Sure. Um, so, you know, I wrote this story with my colleagues, uh, Catherine Varn and Kavitha Serana. Um, and Catherine spoke to Donald Jack. Um, and so Donald Jack was a lifelong Cubs fan and he in the you know his son walks up to the facility um in the middle of the week sort of after Mar the, the week after marjorie blackman goes into the to the hot you know goes in and gets a has a, a temperature um he he goes in and he sees all these ambulances pulling up people in hazmat gear and he runs to the front door and he says is this covid what's going on and they say we don't know and so you know, he, his, he, um, he, he calls, he tries to, you know, talk to his dad. He can't get a hold of him. Um, he tries to get a nurses, can't get a hold of them. And so finally he, somebody tells him, you know, uh, no, his, his son calls, I mean, I'm sorry, Donald Jack calls his son and says, hey, um, I just heard the nurses talking and I think I'm positive. I think they were talking about me. And then soon after, uh, you know, he tries to, so the son tries to contact the facility, can't get any information, texting back and forth with an employee. Um, the employee says, I'm sorry, I can't help. And so, and then the next day his dad is taken out um, to the hospital. He tests positive and he dies a couple you know, a week or two later, um, his, you know, his son had wanted to actually take him out of the, the hospital at the outset, but they, they wouldn't let him, um, because he was worried about it. Mm. So, uh, you know, um, it, 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 I think, you know, and, and the son, of course, like ch many children, you, you know, of, of people who have died in this, you, there's a lot of guilt good you know with children and 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 you know did you do the right thing you know what i mean like i can solely connect with that mm -hmm. um so uh you know it it's it's really a, t a tough thing any way you look at it but yeah he 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 just had a great relationship with his dad and he he just wanted to try and help him and he wishes that the facility had let him know sooner you know that that things this was going on there um so right and and i remember when i read it his son had texted someone and they replied well these things are blown out of proportion i'm basically paraphrasing the response that the texter the employee you know, the person at the facility was texting him back well you know you're this is overblown don't worry right am i i'm on the right track with that right about like uh we're not all bad here. <laughs> um, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're not bad people. We're, you know, but I don't, I can't help you. <laughs> so 
I don't, you know what I mean? I, I don't know, you know, you, maybe you should come to the facility and see your, and, and talk to people yourself um, because I can't get any information for you or whatever. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's, it's hard, you know? Very, very institutional failures. I mean, I mean, to me, it's just very clear. And I, I think, and again, I know that you can't editorialize or say anything about this, but I, I will. Um, it's a, the, 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 I mean, the governor of the state of Florida is given this very, um, not, I wouldn't say colorful nickname, but it is a fashionable nickname. Um, Ron Death Santis is the name that he's given. Um, and I won't, you know, I just think that there's a massive failure of leadership. I think there's a massive institutional failure. I know there's two lawsuits, at least, that you talk about in this story that all three of you write about. Uh, Christopher Pugh is one of the people who, uh, or the of the estate of him, who put, who have, who have, have flat, out, flat out said, you know, you're putting profits ahead of people. And, you know, for me, uh, from my point of view, uh, it's a failure of, quite frankly, an economic system called capitalism that puts profits over people and an institutional failure. And it really galls me. Um, you know, I don't want to rant and vent. We only have a couple more minutes um, at this point. Well, and I, I, can, I can add one, th- okay. two details. Sure. So the governor did not, w- would not give us the names of nursing homes that, that had had positive cases or deaths for quite a number of months. Um, in fact, the end of April was when we were finally, we, the, the state's newspapers had to file suit against the state in order to find out you know, how many people were dying or testing positive. And then the, only then did they do it. And with regard to those admits, the people who were being admitted from the hospital without testing, uh, nursing homes and even some state officials were worried about that in early march like mid mid march there was a hey what about these people shouldn't they be tested before they're coming back to the facilities or shouldn't we stop the flow of patients or something and it wasn't until early may that the governor ordered two tests before somebody leaves a hospital and can go to a nursing home so you got two months of people flowing into these places Mm. so those are the that that's the only, the two you know things that happened that i think you know contributed to this i mean if you had shut down if you would inform people earlier you know re- people could have made decisions you know that kind of thing if you had stopped the admissions maybe they could have controlled it um you know that kind of thing so absolutely and one last thing about that when you mentioned um that he, you know, that he was blocking all of this. So he was blocking things. The governor was blocking things, and he, and the papers had to sue. You know, I think, and about in terms of the numbers of people infected and things like that, I think of, um, and I forget her last name now, Rebecca, I believe it was her first name, who got fired. Um, I gosh, I really wish I remembered her name, but she Jones, got, I think it's Rebecca Jones. Thank you. Like that. that is exactly who yeah. it is. Okay. That is ex- Thank you for jo- that's her, Rebecca Jones who got fired because she refused to fudge the numbers. She refused to, and, and then she still, and I think to this very day, still actually puts the numbers out. And yesterday, and you don't have to respond to this, it's just me telling the, the listeners this. Yesterday, and she posted this on Twitter, did Rebecca Jones. 
Uh, there was a home invasion by police. Put a gun to her face and and, and people stormed into her home and put a gun to... Uh, this is just... There's something really, you know, quite frankly, Gestapo-like about this. Um, and again, you don't have to editorialize or say anything. I'm just saying this for the listeners. People listening to this have to really understand. I would actually invite people to go, and I'll put a link to um, her Twitter page, and so you can see that video. It's an outrage. And then it goes along, Leonora, with what you're saying about what's happened in these facilities, and it really didn't have to be this way. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned at the top of this your own father, um, who who um, I would like you to say a few words about, please, um, in connection to to this and your this personal story for you covering this. Right. So as I said earlier, you know, I I wanted to find out about COVID, and so I was. I was drawn to stories about nursing homes very early on. And then ultimately COVID got into my father's facility in July. And although my father, um, you know, they, they gave him remdesivir and um, they were going to give him the plasma and he seemed to, you know, do better with that, but he had a heart attack and he died. Um, and of you know, COVID was the the cause listed as the cause of death. So I I lost my father, um, who I was very close with. Uh, we went to dinner, you know, four nights a week typically. Um, you know, we really enjoyed our time together. He he really wanted to to live, you know. Um, and and it the fact that he got it after four or five months, he got it. You know, there's been these these waves. So there was the early wave, then there was the July wave. He 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 got hit in the July wave. And I remember, you know, looking at the numbers right before uh, he got it and watching like the neighborhoods. By this time, you know, they had like maps that showed numbers and by zip code and so forth. And watching those neighborhoods right around where his place was, you know, the numbers increasing and you could see it. And then boom, all of a sudden, a po employee within it tests positive. Boom, another employee tests positive, a, a, a resident tests positive. You know, it's just, you could just see it merging in, you know, and, and I, I was caught, I, you know, I was just like, what do I do? But if I bring him home, what if I give it to him? You know, I, I just couldn't, I, you know, it was too fast. And within um, somebody getting like a week, my dad had it, you know, so um, it was really sad for me, uh, losing him like that, um, and not being able to see him. That was the other thing I really learned from this. Um, oh God, this, this, this isolation that, you know, it's such a difficult thing to put people, you know, to keep people isolated from their loved ones like that when they're that old. I mean, the loved ones are what keep them going, you know, and, um, you know, I could see, you know, I was trying to talk to him on the phone every day. Um, and I could see that it, you know, that it was having this huge impact on him, not being able to see his family. And so it's just, it's a hard way to lose him. Um, he's a really good guy. He was, um, you know, great, great, great father. So. Leonora, I am so sorry for your loss. I really am. Um, I, I really do send you personally my deepest, most heartfelt condolences. Um, 
as you've so clearly pointed out, you know, when you're close, you've got a loved one, uh, a father who you really bond with, you're close to, um, and, and he's gone and not being able to really say goodbye, uh, it's heartbreaking. And I'm sure that all the listeners would, would join me in, in wishing you um, the most heartfelt condolences. Uh, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, Thank you so much. You're, you're most welcome. Um, coping must be very difficult. You know, you're, you're into this story you're, and, and there's really no time to you for you to really have a moment for yourself, perhaps. Um, but I do want to thank you so very much, uh, Leonora Lapita Anton, the Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist for the Tampa Bay Times. Her story, along with two other writers that she mentioned, the story is Death at Freedom Square. I will link to that for this episode of the Politocrat podcast. And uh, also, I know that I believe you're on social media as well, um, on Twitter. I'm sure they can find you there. Um, at writer Leonora. Excellent. Thank you so much. At, at writer L-E-O-N-O-R-A. Very important. Yes. <laughs> I'll link to that as well. But thank you for mentioning that too. And thank you very much for your time talking about this story. Um, we really do have to be aware and really uh, get in touch with the fact that this is going on, that there are real, real people behind numbers. And thank you for your time and talking about some of the people that you, you chronicled. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Very special thanks to Leonora Lapita Anton the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at the Tampa Bay Times, for her time talking about this very important, very powerful, and very necessary story that you really must read. I will link to it on the liner notes of this episode of the podcast. And don't forget, you can get in touch with Leonora on Twitter as well, and I will post a link to her Twitter page. Writer Leonora, I believe, is the Twitter handle, but I will make sure that that um, is linked in the liner notes of the podcast episode. We really need to treat each other like human beings. And that's one thing that I didn't mention in our conversation, but we really need to be humane toward each other. And a system of, quite frankly, a system of capitalism, which is all about, you know, when capitalism is, I mean, capitalism should exist. I'm not saying it shouldn't. But what I am saying is, is that there is capitalism that absolutely kills the soul and just destroys people in service of profit. And in many ways, that's inherently what capitalism is, particularly the toxic brand of capitalism that does this. And you see the end result, and that is Freedom Square and the indifference of people who run that place. I should add, by the way, that Leonora, uh, Leonora's story, along with the two other writers that she mentioned who wrote this story with her and did the investigative reporting of the story, tried to reach out to the executive director of Freedom Square and he wanted their questions in advance. 
when he got the questions, he declined to send written answers to them and instead issued a statement. The statement, and I'm paraphrasing, said that we care about the people who come here to Freedom Square. Please read this very important story and you can judge for yourself whether or not that statement is true. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.